This is Research Software Engineer Stories, coming straight at you from USRSC, the U.S. Research Software Engineer Association. Welcome to RSC Stories. I'm Vanessa Socket, and today I have the pleasure of speaking with Dan Katz, Chief Scientist at the National Center for Supercomputing Applications, NCSA. Dan, you have a ton of titles from being research assistant professor in multiple domains, a better scientific software fellow, helping to start a journal, and you have a really rich history going back to working with national labs and really spearheading or being involved in several national or international initiatives. You're really unique because you don't just bring expertise in technical things, but also things that are a lot harder, like policy and community development. So first, welcome to RSC Stories. Thank you. Okay, let's start with your story. Take us back to when you were early in your training and tell us about how you became the person that you are today. Right, so the not so short but not so long version of this is that I was a double E undergrad student and I worked for a summer at McDonnell Douglas. And during that summer, I did some really interesting work. I was working on a bench that could look at the flight control computer on a new version of an F-15 that was being developed and being tested so we could replay it and understand what happened and also put in signals to the computer without the plane actually flying and make sure that the computer responded the way that it should. And so this was, it was a really fascinating project, but I was also working in this giant hall. There were these little U-shaped bays that had about eight or nine desks in them with one person at the head who was the manager of that group. And that manager basically told all of those eight or nine people exactly what they should do. So while I really liked the work, I really didn't like the management style and was kind of frustrated by it. And when I went back to Northwestern where I was studying and talked to one of my professors about it, he told me that that's one of the, the great things about graduate school is that if you have a bachelor's, somebody else will tell you what to do. And if you get a PhD, then you can decide what you're going to do. And that really made me interested in thinking about going to graduate school, which I hadn't really thought about up to that point. Around the same time, I was taking a class that was in computational electromagnetics, and it was really interesting to me, both the things that you could do and also the fact that you could use a computer to simulate the real world and that it would be able to make predictions that you could then test and it could help you understand how the world worked if you had the right equations and the right math algorithms. And that was really fascinating to me. I took that course, and the person that was the faculty member of that course ended up doing a honors project with him as a senior project and started using this parallel computer that he had gotten, kind of been given by Intel. It was a, an early Hypercube, 286-based Hypercube with, I want to say, 16 or 32 nodes, as well as a separate node that was the front end that you would actually work on. You programmed this by using an Intel message passing library to talk between the nodes and using a different Intel message passing library to talk from the front end to the nodes. And so I really, really liked this and ended up deciding that I would continue and try to get a PhD in this area. And my professor who was working on this, Alan Tatlov, was uh, the person that had founded this particular field of electromagnetics or this particular method for solving electromagnetics, the finite difference time domain method. And so I stayed at Northwestern and did a PhD there. And while I was doing that, Alan had some collaborators at Cray Research, and they were interested in what he was doing and saw that it was potentially an area that they could use to find new customers for their Cray 2 at that time, and maybe YMP, I believe, maybe C90. 
And so I went to Cray for what turned out to be four different three-month periods while I was a graduate student and really started to learn about what happened there, what kind of how they did things and what other kinds of computational science areas there were that they were working on and how electromagnetics was both similar and different to them. And this led to when the, I was about six months from finishing my PhD, one of the people that I'd worked with gave me a call and said, we're looking for somebody to work on site at JPL and Caltech. And they would, this person would spend about two thirds of their time working on computational electromagnetics with people that do that kind of research there. And the other third would be trying to find other interesting things that could go onto some new Cray computers. And it turned out that Cray had just leased a Cray T3D, which was their first kind of MPP-like system, to JPL and Caltech. And they knew that electromagnetics was going to be one of the topics, but they wanted to find other areas that could make use of the system there. So I went there and I started working on electromagnetics, but also used the opportunity to learn about other computational ideas. Gradually over time, I expanded my interest in different computational science techniques, and, and this then kind of moved me into looking at some of the underlying computer science problems. And eventually this kind of led into distributed computing as well as the industry changed. And as I was doing this work, I realized at different points that there were these kind of technical things that I could figure out, but there were always also these social challenges that made people maybe unwilling to learn how to use a new system or to learn how to use a new technology. And I became interested in, in the social aspects as well. Part of this actually came out from an interesting course that I took right when I started working from Cray on T3D programming at that point. And this was right when MPI was coming out. And so part of it was learning MPI as well. And the person that was teaching it basically was very proud in some ways that it was actually hard to learn. And it was hard to learn because the same terms were used for different topics. And when he was asked about this by other people in the class, he said, no, this is, this is great. If this wasn't hard to learn, anybody could do it. The fact that it's hard to learn is what makes it exclusive and what makes it high paying and interesting. And so it was really interesting to hear that view as well. I guess as I was continuing to work in computational science, computer science, parallel systems, distributed systems, I gradually realized that there were things that I was doing at JPL that were not the things that were the most interesting to JPL and not the things that JPL was really interested in supporting at that point. JPL was interested in things that contributed to its mission very directly. And so they were interested in systems engineering, uh, robotic spacecraft, things like that. And things that were more fundamental, they were less interested in. And the two things that I got out of that experience were that maybe I should go to a university where the work that was being done was more fundamental. Also, that it's really hard to understand what people are going to appreciate and to pitch your work in a way that matches the kind of reward system and the incentive system. And as I was doing that, and as I went to LSU next after that, I gradually started paying more attention to how things were being measured, how contributions were being measured, and how people decided what to work on, and how they were rewarded for what they worked on. When I ended up going to NSF as a program officer, that was one of the things that I was really interested in, in doing there, was trying to look in more detail at, again, these, these social challenges and these issues about incentives and, and motivation. And this is really what led me to realize, which lots of other people had already realized, but I hadn't, that the, the social factors can often be more important than technical factors in terms of what gets done and what people do and, and why they do it. Once I actually realized this, then I was 
trying to think about how I could use this to make changes that I thought would be valuable to the system overall. And so I was trying to do this to some extent in solicitations that I was writing at NSF, but I was also trying to do this in other activities in terms of thinking about career paths for people, which is certainly related to the, the RSE movement and how people get rewarded for doing what they do. Also trying to think about how this actually fits into universities and how universities basically make decisions about hiring and promotion and realizing that if we could change some of the criteria that went into those decisions, we could actually have a big impact on what happened in the field. And so I think that's kind of where I've gotten to more recently is that realizing that, that almost everything that we do is a combination of social factors and technical factors, and the technical factors are often easier to deal with the social factors. And for the social factors, the trick is to try to find some point of leverage where you can try to make small changes that have a large impact. And so I think USRSE is one example where we're trying to do that. PERSI, the U.S. Research Software Sustainability Institute conceptualization is another area where we're trying to do that. And there probably are others as well. Wow, your story is really interesting because if you hadn't had that original first adverse experience, you maybe wouldn't have even considered graduate school. And you started to talk about careers and people and the social aspects. And I know it must be the case that when you were in training, there wasn't really an established thing that was even called an RSC. So can you tell us the story of how you considered yourself in terms of your role back in those days, and then how you discovered this idea of a research software engineer and what next step you decided to take once you found that role? I think from the time that I was a graduate student, I really was doing what RSEs do today. We just didn't know that at the time. I was primarily working on my own research, but trying to build effective software for it. So the lab that I was in and the, the group that I was in that my advisor had, we basically started with a code that he had written. I'm actually not completely sure. I think it was a code that he had written as a graduate student originally, but I'm not 100% sure of that. And that he had modified and made use of, and then other people in the lab before me had been using it. And then it was kind of my turn and my cohort of graduate students' turn to use it and expand it and, and add new, new capabilities to it. So in some sense, right, I was doing my own research and trying to write engineering papers that were about the results and also about the methods. But at the same time, I actually had to implement those methods in this code that really wasn't my code and do it effectively and do it in a way that somebody else then in the future could take on this code and understand what I had done. And also while I was doing that, really try to improve the code as much as I could so that it was easier for me to use and easier for future people to use. And so that included doing things like adding parallelization, like taking the code from Fortran 77 to Fortran 90 at that time. And another work that I would say really is very similar to work that RSEs today are doing. So I realized that I was really doing RSE work, and in particular, when I was working at Cray and then JPL directly for about 10 years after I worked at Cray for three years, I was really expanding the number of disciplines and the number of areas that I was working in and really seeing the common software work that went across those areas. A combination of software development, picking the right algorithms, optimization, and trying to get the code to work best on the hardware or trying to figure out how the code could work on different hardware, things like that. And so that was really something that got driven into me in a lot of ways. Some of the projects that I worked on were with disciplinary scientists. And one of the programs in particular that was in the HPCC program, I was working both as an evaluator and as a supporter of a team that was doing geoscience research. And the way that the contract that they were working on with NASA was written 
was that they didn't get paid for the work that they would need to do for a milestone until they finished the previous milestone. So their funding was milestone driven. And that led me to both understand when I could sign off on one of their milestones, as well as how I could help them get the next one. And so one of the things that happened there was that I took a code that they had, and I did a lot of work on this code and rewrote large parts of it, optimized it, made it useful and performant enough that it could meet the next milestone. And I gave it back to them and, and they turned it in and we could then test it. And other people looked at it as well and agreed that it met the milestone. And they then got paid for the next increment of work that they were going to do. And in that next increment, they needed to do kind of some more things with this code. The thing that was really interesting to me was that they went back to the code before I had modified it. They didn't start with the code that I had modified. The reason for that was that they didn't completely understand the changes that I had made or why I had made them, and they weren't comfortable with that code. They viewed that as my code and not their code. And so that kind of taught me that this RSE work really has a pretty strong social component to it, that you can't just do the thing that's technically right. You have to really look at the social system as well that you're working in and make sure that the work that you do is the work that is both immediately needed and needed in the long term by the people that you're working with. So having learned that at that point and kind of telling that story a few other times because it seemed like there's lots of situations where that came up in my career. I was then working at University of Chicago and the time that I went on to NSF as a rotator was, was during that time. And I was thinking about what I was doing at University of Chicago, which was trying to trying to make it easier for people to develop parallel codes and to get time to use those codes on what was then TerraGrid, which then turned into Exceed. And again, I was realizing that there were a lot of things that we just didn't have the incentive set up right in order to support people. We looked at the number of people that were writing codes on TerraGrid, and it didn't really change very much over a long period of time. Right. The number of people that were doing this kind of intensive HPC work was not really growing very fast. The number of users on TerraGrid did end up growing very fast, but it grew because of science gateways and new modalities in which people could use the system. But this old way of just logging on and, and writing a program and compiling the program and running it, we really had problems, I think, getting more people to, to do that and, and to grow over time. And so I was really thinking about, again, incentives and motivation a lot at that point. Because I was really working in software, I started thinking kind of more broadly about incentives and motivation across software overall. I started talking to other people that were also interested in the same thing, thinking about how do people program, how do they pick systems to use, how do they do their work, why in some cases do they do work that is kind of throwaway work, and in other cases they redo work that other people have done, and how do we make the system work so that the effort that people put into software is actually is sustained and the software is, is reused over time. And again, I was thinking about that both from the point of view of, of TerraGrid, as well as from the point of view of the NSF, where I was just joining and starting to think about the software programs that were there. And as I was talking to these other people, I realized that the people in the UK, in the Software Sustainability Institute, in particular, Neil Chu Hong, and a bunch of other people that were working with him, Rob Haynes, who I think was just on a one of these podcasts recently, Mike Croucher, James Hetherington, and a few other people also were all, they were all really thinking about these same things. And they had come to the realization that this 
question about career paths and how people identify themselves and how people see themselves as part of a community and, and part of a job family in a lot of ways is really important. And I realized that that was completely true and that I could potentially make use of that here in the U.S. as well. So I had gone to, I think I went to some of the RS, some of the SSI meetings and started talking with them about some of the other activities that were going on and really saw this as a way that we could advance what we were doing in the U.S., both within NSF and, and with the larger community. And so this led to things that I was thinking about in terms of NSF programs, although I would say that the idea of RSEs didn't turn out to be a program, but the software program that I was working on, SI2, Software Infrastructure for Sustained Innovation, which is now turned into part of the CSSI program, was an area where we really wrote the solicitation in a way that we tried to make it clear that we wanted professional software developers to be involved in these projects. And that having a project that involved software that was just written by graduate students who were going to graduate and leave wasn't going to be an effective method for sustainability. And so that's, I would say that that's really what I tried to do there, was to try to create an environment where RSEs had a way to get funded for their work. And the work that they were doing had a, had a path towards sustainability that could lead to, uh, to careers overall. Interesting. So you see creating this community that really serves as this backbone for training and working on policy and funding as a potential solution to this problem of sustainability. I think that's exactly right. That from my point of view, sustainability is, is the high level challenge or all it's like, let's say that it's one of the high level challenges. There's also reproducibility and, and fairness and a few other things, but sustainability is, is a way of thinking about a bunch of these things. If we think about sustainability, there are different ways of looking at it. The way that I like to look at sustainability at this point is that in order to sustain software, which, which means to keep the software working over some period of time as the infrastructure changes and as people find bugs in the software and as there's different, different needs for the software and different features need to be added, we can do kind of one of two things or, or both. One of them is to try to reduce the amount of work that needs to go into the software. And we can try to do this through best practices, through reducing friction from, from things like that. The other thing is that we can try to get additional resources for that work that needs to be done. And we can get additional resources by funding people, which could be what NSF supports or what foundation like Sloan or, or CZI supports. Or we can do it without funding people by making people want to do it as part of their job. If we're going to do that, then the question is, what are the incentives that make people want to join communities and want to, to do things like this? Some of them could be that their career path rewards this. Some of them could be that it's something that they're interested in. Some of it could be that it's something that helps them do their science or their research or something else. So I think that the career path of RSEs and having people involved who are both rewarded for doing work in software that is good work and is best practices and uses good software engineering, as well as the fact that RSEs have other RSEs, uh, that this is not just a single person job, but it's a, a community, that, that that really helps people talk to each other and, and build a sense of what they should be doing which then hopefully matches what their uh, employers actually want them to do as well. That kind of combined then leads to more sustainable software. The, the fact that people want to work on the software, the fact that they're rewarded either financially or intellectually or in some other way for working on it, and the fact that they really have good software engineering practices and other best practices to, to make it as good as possible and to reduce the future amount of work that needs to be done. 
One thing that I've noticed is that there are groups at institutions that combine RSCs with a research computing group. So for example, the same team, the same group of people is in charge of managing both the clusters and doing software development. But I've also seen that it's fairly common to have this sort of separation between those two groups. So you have your RSCs, but then you have your separate HPC admins. In those cases, I think the challenge is that there are potentially huge differences in culture. So I guess if we were just dealing with like one community of RSCs, it would be sort of a nice well-scoped problem, but it seems like a much more challenging problem because you're not just working on the community and the culture of RSCs, but you have to figure out how to successfully interact with these already existing sort of hard-grained academic cultures. My question is, how do we potentially get these two very different cultures to work together? I think that's a really good question. And I'm not sure that I have a great answer, but I think the main answer that I have is that people are generally social and they generally like to be around other people, at least virtually and in some sense, who they have something in common with. And so I think you can look at RSEs in a bunch of different ways. You can look at RSEs who are in an institution as wanting to have colleagues who are doing similar things. And those colleagues may be in other institutions. So there might be like scattered RSEs in one place, but they really feel more connected to the RSE community nationally or internationally than they do to other people in their institution in that sense. Or you can have groups of RSEs in an institution who really do feel connected within their group very strongly. I think the question about whether it makes sense to have a group of RSEs or kind of individual RSEs or some RSEs that are in a different group that has some kind of different purpose really depends a lot on the culture of the institution and the, and the organization, the management of the particular part of the institution that they're in. I don't think that there's necessarily a good answer other than to some extent, the larger the organization is, the more likely it makes sense to split off the RSEs into their own kind of team or group. But in the case that you were describing where you have, say, RSEs and, and system administrators and maybe also kind of a frontline help desk support and, and some other things that are all in the same group, I think the challenge then is for all the people to think about what they're doing and how they're contributing to the overall mission of that group. I think in, in teams where things work well, it's, it works out reasonably well that people kind of understand that the system administrator has this job, the frontline support person has this job, the RSE has, has this job, and together they're providing a service that helps the researchers in that institution and makes the institution as a whole stronger. And again, as long as those RSEs, I think, can look outside of that institution as well and understand best practices that come from others and can bring those in as part of their work and the system administrators and the frontline support and the management support them and realize that by doing that, they're contributing more strongly to the organization and they're going to make the organization stronger, then I think things work well. How important do you think it is for an institution to officially acknowledge the role of a research software engineer versus, for example, having a research associate that just calls themselves a research software engineer? I think it's actually pretty important that the institution moves in that direction over time. But we're in a situation where five years ago, there weren't any RCs in the US, or at least there weren't any that called themselves RCs. And so somehow right, we have to go from there to the point where the institutions recognize what is being done and support it. And that's faster or slower at different places. I think there are things that we can do to try to, to help that, to provide examples to some extent of how things work and, and why things work. And I think we've been starting to do that in some universities. 
I think similarly to what's happened with campus clusters to some extent, where the fact that universities will see what other universities are doing, and if it seems like it's working, they will want to copy it often over or try to do something similar and maybe even improve it. So I think it is important that universities recognize RSEs and give them a structure in which they can do RSE work when they really are RSEs. I mean, again, in some cases, there might be somebody that's just doing some part-time work and it's a very small group and, and maybe it doesn't make sense for that person to call themselves an RSE, even though they're doing some research software engineering as part of their job. But if there are enough people, I think it's important for the university or the institution uh, in a larger sense over time to, to recognize that and to set up the right mechanism to reward it. I think if they don't, they're going to end up losing out because the people that are doing this kind of work will go to the places where they will be better supported. That is definitely true. You mentioned a funding model based on milestones, and funding is one of those challenges that, for example, if you're at an institution and you want to start some kind of RSC group, you have to figure that out. So based on your experience and all the different kind of models of funding that you've seen, what seems to work and what doesn't? I think what works is finding a champion at the university. So let's just say that we're talking about a university as opposed to a national lab, but I think this also goes for national labs or industry or other things, but I'm going to keep saying university for the time being. So I think finding a champion at the university who is in a position to make a difference and who believes that research software engineering is important. And that person could be a faculty member. It could be somebody in the IT organization. It could be an administrator. It's a little bit hard to say. I think it depends a lot on the particular institution. But finding that person and then convincing them that the RSC role is important and convincing them enough that they believe that having this RSC role is going to help the institution and is going to help them. And then they can then go on to other levels of the institution and try to figure out what the best way to do this in their institution is. An example of this, I think, is at NCSA, where we have probably something like 35 people who have at least some part of an RSE role with, within one group, where over a period of time, Kenton McHenry was able to make a convincing case that by having these RSEs and having them reach out and do work with different people at the university and outside the university, more and more work was coming in and that there was a need for them and that they were bringing in both funding as well as intellectual interest to the university and, and making the university known for doing this kind of work. So Kenton was able to, to use that growth as an argument to formalize some of the positions and to start bringing in the RSE. We don't officially have an RSE title right now, but we're very close to it and we have it in practice in terms of job descriptions. It's just not the title, I would say. So I think that's one example. Another example that's kind of interesting is Jeff Carver at University of Alabama, who became convinced that this was important and had a workshop on campus where he brought in a, a few outside experts and then brought a number of people from the campus together, a number of faculty and researchers, and was able to, to use that workshop to make the case to his administration that there was a need for RSEs and that we knew what RSEs were and have models that work in other places, and that the university should put some investment into hiring an RSE to start with as a test to really understand, does this help the university and does this help the faculty? And those other faculty members, in some sense, are the champions there, because from coming to this workshop and expressing their needs and seeing a way to satisfy those needs, they became really, I think, interested and in, in supportive of this. There are, I think, other examples in between, but I would say that those are kind of two extreme examples. What kind of progress are we making with respect to defining the role of a research software engineer? 
I think as we look at different universities and labs and industry and see what they are doing commonly, we can pull pieces out of that and try to come up with standards for what we think a RSE title and job description should be. I think we're starting to do that informally. We're starting to do it through job descriptions. When we post job descriptions, other people see them and other people copy pieces of them. And we're also starting to do it, I think, through Campus Champions a little bit and through CARC a little bit. These organizations that are trying to professionalize some of these, say, less traditional academic, but research roles or research adjacent roles, at least. The fact that in the U.S. we don't have any kind of national funding for universities or national guidelines for what jobs are or things like that means that we likely are never going to have a completely standard set of career paths or job descriptions or roles. But I think we can come fairly close in practice by, again, just seeing what works in different places and having the people that are doing the hiring and the people that are involved in the interviewing and the people that are involved in arguing for RSEs really learning from each other and, and copying each other in the best way. Now let's flip that question and move it from asking about people to software. What kinds of progress are we making with respect to citing research software? Ah, research. Yeah, citing research software is another exciting topic. I think we're actually starting to make decent progress there. If you go back to what I was saying before about finding points of leverage and trying to make changes from in a community based on small changes at that point of leverage or small actions at that point, I think we're actually just about at a point where we're going to start to see dramatic changes. One of the activities that I co-led in the past with Arfin Smith and Kyle Niemeyer was under Force 11, and that was building a set of software citation principles. We did that work because Force 11 had previously sponsored the work that had led to data citation principles, and the data citation work was starting to catch on. And it became clear that we really needed to do something similar for software. As I was talking about before, the incentives that people have for writing their software and, and maintaining it are important in terms of what they actually choose to do. If we have incentives that lead people to see that, that maintaining their software, writing better software is going to help them in their career, then they will do it. We created a set of software citation principles initially, which effectively really just said that software citation is important and then said some things about it. And we kind of thought at that time that that was really what we needed to do, that we could just create these principles and people would see them and they would start to apply them and, and everybody would be happy and the world would change. And we realized fairly quickly that that wasn't the case and that we actually needed to do quite a large amount of work around them to try to bring them into practice more. And so we started a second working group called the Force 11 Software Citation Implementation Working Group. And in this case, I am co-leading this with Neil Chu Hong and Martin Fenner. When we started this, we thought that we just needed to do a little bit of work to publicize the principles and to get people to endorse them, and then that they would start using them. And we also then quickly realized that that wasn't true either, and that we really needed to work hard in a bunch of different areas. So we've been working in, I would say, at least four different areas on this. One of them has been to create guidelines, relatively simple guidelines for software developers and for paper authors, for software developers to say how to make their software citable and for paper authors for them to know how to actually cite somebody else's software. So we have two documents that are both version 0.9 for those that are public and that we're starting to point people to and, and other people are starting to use as well. We have been doing work in metadata. And one of the challenges about software citation is that in order to cite software, you need to know the metadata about it to put into the citation thing 
things like the authors and maybe the date and the version and the place the software is, is available and, and things like that. So we've been trying to work to standardize how that's done. And there's a couple of different paths that we've been going through, which is probably beyond the scope of this immediate discussion. But just really briefly, one of them is a project called Code Meta, which is trying to standardize how metadata is recorded for software in general. There's a similar project called citation.cff, which is looking at a way to make it easy for people to write a little bit of metadata specifically for citation and to have that tracked with their software. And then the, the other main thing is the work that the Software Heritage Organization is doing, which is a group that is kind of like archive.org, the internet archive, it automatically records and archives software that is being built in open source repositories so that you can point to that repository rather than pointing to the live software on GitHub or, or GitLab or somewhere else. And you can be sure that archive software and the address of that archive software is never going to change. Unlike GitHub, which might go away someday or, or GitLab, or you might remove the repository or, or something else. So that's the metadata part. The third thing that we've been doing is to work with repositories. And this is things like Zenodo or institutional repositories like at Caltech or other things like that. And we're coming up with a set of best practices for those repositories for how they deal with software and how they collect the information that's needed so that that software that they're holding can be made citable and people can easily understand how to cite it. And the fourth thing that we're doing is working with journals and publishers. And so we have just had a paper that went into F1000 research that had an accept with reservations review and an accept review. And we need to make some small changes to try to get that first review to an accept so that it can be peer reviewed and become accepted officially. And this paper has as authors, people that represent 19 major publishers, as well as the people that represent uh, DataCite and Crossref, which are the, the, the DOI kind of systems behind the scenes. And what we've written there is a primer effectively on software citation that each of those publishers then can then take and, and customize for their own communities and their own disciplines to give the editors and the authors and the reviewers very direct guidance about how to cite software. And so I think if we are putting ourselves in the future, maybe a year or so, and this paper has been accepted and all of these publishers have started to change their guidance so that they ask for software to be cited and they tell authors how to do it and they tell reviewers how to check it and they tell editors that they shouldn't be letting things go if they haven't cited the right software, we're really going to be in a much different place than we are now. If you look at the fact that there is an exponentially growing number of DOIs that are being issued for software now, and this has basically started effectively since the linkage between GitHub and Zenodo that made it relatively easy and automatic to have GitHub releases archived by Zenodo and give out DOIs, this is already starting to happen. So we have part of the mechanism in place, but we just don't have the, the incentives on the journal side in place yet. And so I think once we get that done, which is again pretty close, things will really accelerate even faster. Since we've been talking about citation, is the underlying assumption that the way that we value the work of research software engineers should mimic the way that we value academics through publication? Are there other metrics that we can use that represent the value of an RSE? So this is another kind of completely different interview we could do about this, but I think that the quick answer is that in the software citation principles paper, we actually wrote an interesting little uh, sentence or two where we said something like, we're not saying that we should cite software like we do papers because it's the right thing to do, but because it's the practical thing to do. So we have this enormous 
scholarly research ecosystem, scholarly publishing research ecosystem and metrics based on it that exist. And the easiest short-term thing that we can do is to make software fit into the system. It's not the right thing to do in the long term. There's a lot of reasons why software doesn't fit very well, but in order to start the process of change, it's a good first step. The other first step that we're also taking is that even beyond trying to cite software directly, we're trying to encourage people to write placeholder papers about their software. The part of the effort that I'm involved with to do this is the Journal of Open Source Software, where we say that if you have well-documented, well-written, well-tested software, you should be able to submit that software to JAWS with about an hour of work. And the review process should take something on the order of a month or two until you get a DOI for a short paper that you can use use to give to people to cite that software. And that DOI is for a paper, and so it fits extremely well into the system that we have. Again, it's not the right thing. It would be much better to have people cite software directly than to cite a placeholder for the software. Even citing the software, again, as you say, is not the right mechanism in the long run. But we're trying to do these things that are practical and short-term, as well as trying to do research to understand what these better long-term answers are. Just to give one example, one of the ideas that I've talked about and wrote a paper about, I think in 2014 or 15, was an idea called transitive credit. And the idea of transitive credit was that anybody that publishes or at least archives any kind of a research product, whether that's a paper or software or a data set or, or anything else, would assign credit to that in some fractional sense from all the things that they depended on. And that could be, again, if this is a paper, it could be software, it could be data, it could be other papers, it could be authors, that they come up with some mapping. And as you can imagine, if everybody did this, then we could really build these kind of transitive credit chains from any one product to all the other products that it thinks should be given credit. And this would be a really good way of looking at things like libraries that likely are not going to be cited because they're not the thing that gets used directly. They're the thing that's used inside the software that's being cited. And right now we're not really, we don't have any good way of capturing those. It's not practical to ask somebody that's writing a paper to cite the software they use and then to cite the libraries that that uses and then the libraries that that uses and then the dependencies of those libraries and then the compilers and the operating system and so forth. That information is probably important for reproducibility, at least to some level, but it's not practical for citation, at least in the system we have. So again, citation is kind of a placeholder to start fixing the system. There are other people that are doing interesting work as well. I'd say Heather Pior and Jason Priam, who had done the work initially on Impact Story and then on Depsy. And I think the current name of the company and the current product that they're doing is, I believe it's Our Research, are an example of people that have been thinking about this tremendously and looking at different ways that we can try to capture software and capture its usages and its dependencies and and how important it is. Another example is the work that James Howison is doing, where he's trying to look at papers and automatically using NLP, find software mentions that are not citations. And again, try to track the software that's being used in those papers, even if the authors haven't cited it, so that the authors of the software then will be able to get credit and understand how their software is being used. Overall, the challenge that we have is that there are things that are 
very easy to count about software, things like downloads. And then there are the things that are the most interesting, which is really the dependency chains and the impact of the software. And that's really hard to count, particularly if the software is not being used directly in the research. And so I think this is a very active area of ongoing research to understand how we can do a better job. I think we're, we're really just kind of, again, working at the beginning of this and trying to do the things that we can do that lead to some rewards for software developers and help some of the software developers understand how their software is being used and, and be recognized for that. I also think that the future is really exciting because there's just so much opportunity to change the way things are now. So we're coming up on time. I have just two more questions. As a chief scientist, what does a day in the life look like? Yeah, I wish I had a good answer for that right now. The problem is that I've been the chief scientist at NCSA for about something like four or five weeks, so I don't completely know yet. I've been in the process of trying to transition off of some of the existing projects that I've had, which is sometimes a slower activity than you might like, or that I might like. And so I've been spending less time as the chief scientist than I would like to. But I guess the way that I would describe it at this point is really a combination of trying to talk to a lot of people, mostly internally right now and understand where they think we should be going and how they think we should be getting there. And then later I'll be doing this with more external people as well. And then trying to put all of that together into a plan that helps guide some of the activities that NCSA does and helps us figure out where we need to invest for the future. The other thing that, that I've been doing actually before I was the chief scientist, but I also really find very enjoyable and, and really kind of exciting to do is mentoring people and trying to work with people on proposals and proposal ideas and trying to help them work through where they should be going and how they should be trying to get the funding or get the buy-in in order to develop the ideas that they think are important. Talking to people, understanding goals, mentoring, these are all really good examples of why those social aspects are just so important. So final question. What do you like to do when you aren't working? This is a question that has different answers depending on where we are and what time of the year we're in. I would say that if we weren't in this COVID situation, I really like traveling. I like to try to, if I'm going somewhere, to try to take an extra day, to try to take an extra afternoon, to really try to learn about the place that I'm in, to, to see what's going on. And part of that is also related to photography. I, I like the idea of taking pictures and trying to represent interesting aspects of something in a, in a picture. Because of COVID, obviously I haven't been doing any traveling. I think the farthest I've gone from my house in the last nine months, 10 months, wherever we are now, is about 15 miles. I've gotten into bird photography during this time and have been really starting to understand the birds that we have locally and how they vary by season and kind of all these really interesting things that I don't think I was really aware of. As an example, there's a preserve that I go to pretty regularly and along the way, a couple of months ago, I saw some birds that seemed like they were kind of acting strangely by a tall plant in the prairie. And I didn't really understand what they're doing. And I was trying to watch them. And I eventually realized that there was a nest hidden there. And the birds ended up flying away from the nest. I guess maybe because I was there because I got too close before I realized that. So I was able to look in the nest and, and find some eggs. And that was kind of exciting. And as I kind of kept coming back, whenever I would get close to this nest, which happened just be like it was right on the trail, the birds would fly away briefly. And so I'd kind of look into the nest again and, and watch the baby birds that had been hatched. And then as they went through a kind of fledgling period and, and then eventually started flying. I think it's been kind of amazing to me to see how much stuff there is in the world close to me when I actually just have time to stop and look at it. Another example of how adversity can lead to unexpected good things. Yeah, exactly. So Dan, it's been such a pleasure to have you on RSC Stories today. You're really a leader and a role model in our community, 
And we talked about so many interesting topics today. I actually had to not ask you a huge list of questions because we really did go a little bit over time. But I'm just so grateful to get your wisdom and your voice on the podcast. So thank you for coming. I have to say that I'm really very glad that you do this. I think this has been a great thing for the community. I've come to realize that the different people have different ways that they learn about things. And while I like to read things more as a, as a way of learning and to talk to people, it's extremely clear to me that there's a lot of people that really find podcasts to be a, a great way of, of learning about issues. And I think the fact that you've been, in some sense, both explaining issues through your questions and also kind of documenting a lot of the, the history of this interesting work is tremendously valuable, both for people that are interested today, as well as for probably people in 10, 15, 20 years that are going to be looking back at this time and trying to understand what happened. I totally agree. And that's a really scary thought to think that someone 20 years in the future is listening to this. Let's focus on just 2021 first. <laughs> so thank you again. Thanks, Dan.